please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's page 230 in the Bible that's in the pew rack. In chapter 7, the Israelites experienced a a breathtaking and exhilarating uh, victory against their enemies, the Philistines, that was uh, from none other than God himself. He is the one that brought that victory. Uh, And then the chapter closes with sort of a summary statement of uh, Samuel's ministry, verse 15, judged, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Again, he's fulfilling this kind of dual role as both prophet and judge. Uh, talks about how he goes through the various towns and, and uh, blessing the people in that way. And we come to chapter 8 and we're reading of the, the end of his, his time as the leader in Israel. Let's give careful attention to God's word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day... You will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Thus far, God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. Here's the situation. The nation's leader is too old to continue in office, and his son is in trouble with the law. I'm not talking about White House drama. Uh, This is actually the state of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. This is the predicament that we find Israel in, and it is a predicament. There is no suitable leader to take over for the nation because Samuel is too old. And, well, we get the summary here in verse 5. The elders say, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. The sons violate God's laws. They take bribes. They pervert justice. Something similar happened with Samuel as happened with Eli. Right, where the sons do not follow in the footsteps of their father, but they abuse the power given to them. They disqualify themselves from leadership in Israel. So the elders' solution, as they see this problem, this predicament, their solution is to get a king. And it needs to be stated from the outset that that is not a sinful desire or impulse in the people. Their request for a king is not in and of itself wrong. On the contrary, it was was part of God's plan from the very beginning uh, that there would be a king to reign over his people. Literally, the very beginning. You go back the whole way to Genesis 17, where God is establishing the covenant of grace with Abraham. And this is what he tells Abraham. Kings will come from you. Kings will come from you. And then once... Uh, Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Once that all happens, and then the nation is, is sort of officially organized under the leadership of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, and in chapter 17, there are specific instructions for how a king would be chosen, and what kind of king he ought to be. But it states very clearly, it's Deuteronomy 17:15. you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And as you go on to read the rest of that chapter, Yahweh lays out a very, uh, clear, very clear instructions for the king uh, that would make him quite unlike the kings of the other nations. He would not be like the king that Samuel warns of in verses 10 through 16. Samuel is not describing kings in general in that portion. Uh, he is describing the kings of the neighboring nations. The king that Deuteronomy calls for, though, is the king after God's own heart. But all that to say, there's nothing inherently sinful about kings or monarchies. Most of us here being American, that might not sound right at first, but it's true. Think about it. The church is the kingdom of God, after all. Even Israel, before this point, already had a king. And that was Yahweh. Uh, Israel was established as a theocracy, one in which they were ruled by the Lord himself as their king. So they had a theocracy 
like you hear the Greek word theos for God, theocracy, unlike a democracy, power of the people is power of the Lord, to God, the, the, um, a, a Yahweh is the one ruling them. And herein, lie, herein lies part of the problem of their request as the Lord makes clear to Samuel. Look at what makes Samuel upset. Verse, um, let's see here. Uh, verse 6. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. That's what Samuel's upset about. They want a king. And God says, no, that's not the thing you should be upset about. What you should be upset about is that they're rejecting me as king, and they want a king in their way. It's not the king itself, the kingship or the monarchy that's the problem. No, God says very clearly to Samuel, who's you know, feeling slighted. He probably feels like his years of service have, have, are being dishonored here. Um, the Lord says to him, verse 7, Don't take it so personally, Samuel, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me as king. And it's true, as I mentioned, we saw in the previous chapter, one of the grand displays of God's kingship over the nation, where he soundly defeats the Philistines at Mizpah. The the Israelites don't even lift a finger. Uh, The Lord does the work, and and the people are, are, or the Philistines, the enemies are completely destroyed. That's chapter 7. That's how chapter 7 ends. And then you turn to chapter 8. And you wonder, did Israel even read chapter 7? Much less, did they live through it? Why, why is it that now all of a sudden they want to change things? They want to restructure uh, the government as though it hasn't been working out for them. They want a different governmental arrangement. But this is not a new problem. What does the Lord say to Samuel? Verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods... So they're doing to you. In other words, Samuel, I've been putting up with their rebellion and their rejection from day one. This is nothing new. Well, friends, I wonder, as we read this passage, if you sensed your own rebellion and rejection to the Lord's kingship over you. For me, the most powerful punch that this chapter packs is in the way it uncovers in a very unflattering way, the nature of our own sin. Uh, We read of the elders' demands, and we think they're foolish. They're rude. They're um, ungrateful. And they are. But their speech there, we remember, as Jesus says, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And their hearts are just as sinful as my heart, just as sinful as your heart. And so in that way, I think we should recognize three rebellious behaviors in this chapter. Uh, Rebellious behaviors that are exhibited by the elders. And we do that so we can discern in our own lives these behaviors. And then properly repent of them, mortify those wrong desires, and commit ourselves to a wholehearted obedience to God. That's what I want for us today. Here are the three errant sinful rebellious behaviors that we see from the elders. First is that they, are, they have an attraction to the world. Second, they have a rejection of the Lord. And third, they have an aversion to his word. First, an attraction to the world. What do they say? Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, we get it, don't we? Being a Christian means being different 
And being different stinks. It's hard. We get that. Uh, maybe especially when we're younger. Boys and girls, you maybe have found yourselves in situations where uh, you're not allowed to do the same things your friends can do. You can't use the... Uh, maybe you can't watch the same movies or, or play the same games or go to the same places or use the same words that they use. And that's hard. Oftentimes our response is, what's the big deal? Everybody else is doing it. Well, peer pressure doesn't lessen when you get older. Uh, the pull to want to conform to the rest of the world just increases. The, the stakes actually are higher the older you get, why is it do you think that we think that being like the world will solve our problems? I came up with two reasons. I'm sure there are others, but I think there's at least two. The first is that um, we see that everybody else is doing better than us. We see other people doing well. Um, we see the smiles on other people's faces. We see the cars they drive. We see the friends they have. We see the houses they live in, the jobs they have. We see the parties they get invited to. Social media tells us that. We didn't get invited to them, but we see the parties they get invited to. The jealousy we, we feel when we see other people's happiness on things like Instagram and Facebook, by the way, that's not a bug in the system. That is actually the system's main feature. These platforms are fueled by envy. So don't buy the lie that if you had what everybody else had that you're seeing online, that your life would be better. Without Christ, we'll all be as miserable as the next guy, no matter how we might dress it up when we put it on Facebook or as we type it into a year-end letter that we send on a Christmas card and say, look at our family, we're perfect. Paul writes this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's learned the secret. What's the secret, Paul? What is it? You know the answer. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Friends, you need to know today that without Christ, you could have the biggest mansion that's never going to fill the hole in your heart. Without Christ, the biggest mansion is not going to fill the hole in your heart. But with Christ, having nothing means you have everything. That's, that's the cure for this attraction to the world where we want to be like the world because we think they're happier and they're better and everything would be better if we had what they had. No, what you need is Christ. What you need is Jesus. Psalm 37.5, better is the little that the righteous have than the abundance of many wicked. Another reason we want to be like the world is because we think it will make us safer. And, and let's be honest, I think that's a legitimate concern. To be different is to stand out, and especially when we're talking about Christianity, um, to stand out means to put a target on your back, a target for ridicule or worse. Maybe ridicule is about all there is right now in the States, in other countries, it's a lot worse than just ridicule. So we want to blend in for safety. But here's the cold, hard truth. Being like the world or blending in is actually antithetical to the, the Christian faith in life. You can either be a Christian or you can blend in, but you can't do both. To be a Christian is to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart, to be different. 
It's not that we're different in that we draw attention to ourselves, but rather it's in standing out from the rest of the world that we draw attention to our Lord, the one for whom we stand out and step out. We're to be like him. That's the instruction Peter gives in his first epistle. Turn there with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, 13. Verse 13, we're going to read a paragraph here that's really helpful. Peter is instructing, uh, they're called the, the diaspora, these five churches that have been... Uh, uh, exiled from their home, they've been sent abroad, they feel like they're, they're sojourners, they feel like they don't fit in. That's what we're talking about, right? Not fitting in. Uh, people who don't belong. And what's his instruction? What's his advice to them? First Peter chapter 1. Therefore, this is verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully in all the things that the world has. No. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the world in the way they behave, in the way you used to behave pre-conversion. But... As he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is what it means to stand out, to be different. You are to be holy, and that's scary. We want to be protected from that. But Peter reminds us the thing that we have to fear is not what the world can do to us, but we must fear the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. If you call on him as a father who judges impartially, then conduct yourselves well while you are in exile, while you don't fit in. If we keep our conduct pure, if we keep in line with Christ, we are protected. And that will remove the fear we have of being different. Again, Psalm 37. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. You don't have anything to be afraid of, because that's how the story ends. You'll be exalted into heaven and the wicked will be cut off. Israel is short-sighted, just like us. Isn't that our problem? We're short-sighted, and we want to be like the world because we think they're happier and they're safer. And that's why Israel says, give us a king like the nations. Well, beyond an attraction to the world, secondly, we also have here a rejection of the Lord. We mentioned that earlier. The Lord recognizes that in asking for a king and the way that they ask for it and the timing that they ask for it, this sort of, it's not a request, right? It's a demand. In doing this, uh, it's evidence that the nation wants a different leader in charge rather than God himself. They're not content with the ways things are going. So the votes are in and Yahweh is out. We gave you, we gave you a couple generations and uh, we're done with you. We want somebody else. Oh, Friends, don't we do the same thing? When things aren't going well in our lives, instead of turning to the God who alone can fix them, don't we often turn away from him to try to fix them ourselves? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? 
Do we think we need to handle things on our own? Do we try to establish our own agenda for how things need to be? Listen to how Dale Ralph Davis diagnoses our situation. He says, instead of looking to God for help, we are more interested in prescribing what form God's help must take. Let me read that again. Instead of looking to God for help, we're more interested in prescribing. That means we're calling the shots. Prescribing what form God's help must take. Our attention is not on God's deliverance in our troubles, but on specifying the method by which he must bring that deliverance. Have you ever found yourself thinking this way? Have you ever found yourself praying this way? Lord, you know, like maybe money's tight and the prayer isn't Lord provide. It's Lord, give me this job on this date. Right? Make, make, I have the plan, Lord, and here's the plan. Now you make it happen. You ever prayed prayers like that? Have you ever found yourself operating under the assumption that unless things play out in real life like they've played out in your head, then all hope is lost? Here's the, here's the truth, that when we hold on with a death grip to our agenda and our schemes, that is, the, that is tantamount. That's the, that's the same thing as rejecting God. When we say, Lord, it has to be this way and it has to be now, that's the same as saying no to God. Saying now to God is often the same as saying no to God. That's the sad reality of what sin does. It turns us from the only one who can help us. Look at the nation here. Look how desperate they are for anyone, anything apart from Yahweh. After Samuel describes in great detail how terrible this king is going to be, he'll take their sons, he'll take their daughters, take their money, take their property... What do they say? They say, yeah, give us that. That sounds great. That's, yeah, sure, whatever. Just, we don't want God. Don't you hear what we're saying? Give us whatever, whatever the next option is. Look at verse 17, which is really astounding. Here's the summary statement of what it will be like to have this kind of king. The end of verse 17. And you shall be his slaves. They're going to return to their status back in Egypt. And they're cool with that. This is what sin does. Sin makes us say, I'd rather have a tyrant control my life than God. And this isn't the first time they've done that, right? They're in the wilderness saying, oh, that we could have been back in Egypt as slaves rather than dying in the desert. Well, now they're out of the desert and they're in the promised land. They're saying, we still would prefer to be slaves. Every time we sin, we're making a similar claim, right? We're saying, I would rather be enslaved to my passions. I'd rather be enslaved to my lust, my disordered desires, even though I know it will lead me to hell. I'd rather be enslaved to those things than being free in Christ. Why? Because we are so short-sighted we think that sin will bring greater pleasure and greater pleasure in the here and now is, well, that's worth whatever might come in the hereafter. And so we reject the Lord. And when we're called out on it, we don't listen either. Note that in the case of the elders of Israel and that they do not heed the warning that is given them of what it will be like to have a king like the rest of the nations. We see here a third behavior, rebellious behavior. Not only is that that they are attracted to the world, not only do they reject the Lord, but they have an aversion to his word when it's proclaimed to them. We could actually say this is one of the ways in which they reject the, the Lord is that they don't listen to his word. So verse 19, after Samuel gives them this warning, 
Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, there shall be a king over us. Um, one time, uh, Carrie and I had a, a little baby moon before Evie was born for like two nights in this beautiful Airbnb that we got on Virginia Beach, and it was just a wonderful time together. Except you remember, honey, when we turned on the lights and the cockroaches would flee under the cupboards. Once they were gone, it was beautiful. But um, then you turn off the lights and you know they're back out here, aren't they? That's what cockroaches do, right? The light goes on and they flee. That's what our souls do when the, the lamp that is the word of God shines on them. We flee for the shadows. We don't want to face the truth of God's word. This, this is what we do. Apart from the, the spirit of God doing a gracious work in our hearts when God's word convicts us or confronts us or is read, we plug our ears. We even do it in church. Not literally, but what do we do? We, we daydream. We don't, we don't pay attention. Or we don't listen with discernment. What I mean by that is we can hear God's word being proclaimed and we think that all the threatenings and all the warnings and all the exhortations, all the convictions of the text belong to the person sitting a few rows up from me, but not to me. Some of you are even doing that today. Not paying attention or not listening with discernment. That's what the human heart by nature does. We have an aversion to the word of God. And that's what we see here in the nation, uh, represented by the elders. Well, in response to their obstinance, what does God do? Of all things, he actually acquiesces. He gives in to their request. Verse 22 tells Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. The Lord permits Samuel to give the people the king they want, even though it is not the king they need. He gives them the king they want, even though it's not the king they need. And he tells Samuel to institute this, or begin instituting the process of the monarchy. That's why he says, go back to your homes. The elders have spoken. Okay, well, well I hear you. Now you go back, and we're going to take care of this in the future. Go give them a king who will take sons to be soldiers, daughters to be servants, take property and produce, and, and make his own people rich, his entourage rich, and leave his citizens poor, his subjects poor. God gives them their request. And I think now would be a good time just to stop and, and recognize and reflect for a moment that sometimes the, the, the most kind thing that the Lord does for us is not answer the prayers that we ask of him. Have you ever considered that? Think about all the things that you've prayed for in your life. Uh, think about how sometimes your prayers were so selfish or so misguided, so misinformed or so impulsive and not clear-headed what would your life look if God what would it look like if God had given you every single thing that you've ever prayed for what would your life look like who would you be married to what 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 career would you have where would you be living what friends might you not know what experiences would you not have gone through. Isn't George Bailey like the perfect example of the, uh, of the lesson that both the things God gives us as well as the things that he does not give to us are perfect? God's silence at times in response to your prayers 
is the sweetest thing he can do for you. There are unknown blessings in prayers not granted. Because God is as wise as he is kind and he knows what we need better than we do. And so sometimes, friends, in grace and in mercy, in grace and in mercy to you, he says no. But here in judgment, he says yes to Israel. He says yes. He gives them the king that they want, not the king they need. In a future survey, a survey of the future kings in the land shows how the prediction of the prophet comes true in short order. Chapter 22 shows Saul confiscating land from the people to give to his officers. Uh, 1 Kings 5, Solomon takes 30,000 sons and puts them into forced labor to build his mansion. Then his son, Rehoboam, not wanting to seem weak, rules with an iron fist. My little finger is thicker than my father's thigh, whereas he laid on you a heavy yoke. I will even add to your yoke, Rehoboam says. But as we keep scanning down the long line of Israelites' kings, we learn that ultimately God does have mercy on his people. And ultimately he does give them not the king that they wanted, but actually the king they needed. And it's this time of year we celebrate the fact that in love and mercy, God finally sent that king. Not a king like the nations, but a king who actually said, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, We are so desperate to be like the world, to conform to the world, and yet we learn our hope is in a different world entirely. Philippians, our citizenship, this Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's salvation going to come for God's people? Heaven. We await a Savior, the Lord, the King. Our King is in another world. Therefore, our hope should be in another world. Sadly, though, when he showed up on the scene, he was treated much the same way Yahweh's treated in 1 Samuel 8. Jesus expresses the reception he got in a parable. Do you remember that parable in Luke 19? A parable of the tenants and his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. But why not? Maybe you feel that way too. I don't want this man to reign over me. But I ask you, why not? Why not? Why not have this king be yours? A king who comes in kindness and in gentleness and meekness and mercy. You know, the key word for the kind of king that that the nation wanted, the king like the other neighboring nations, the key word to describe him, did you notice it? Was take. Six times, he will take, take, take. He will take, take, take. And Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. The only thing that Jesus takes from you is your sin and your sadness. Why not when a king like this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know what we need better than we know it ourselves. And what we needed was a king who would come in weakness and in humility and who would conquer us by grace, by melting our hearts in love and submission to him. 
Lord, on this day, we ask you to do a mighty work in the hearts of this church, of these people here, that you would help us to love the King and to want to be conformed not to the world but to him. You promised for those you foreknew, you predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son. We want to be like him. Forgive us for the ways we're attracted to the world and, and that we reject you and that we reject your word, but instead would we be drawn to your word because in there we find the king who meets all of our needs. We thank you for Jesus, and I pray that we would all bow the knee to him, give him the homage and the honor he deserves. I pray that you would do a mighty work of conversion. There are some here today who do not own him as king. May they leave this place as his glad and willing subjects. Amen.